lives in redemption story. Okay? So there is a plan for the earth overall, and there is a plan for every individual. And that's why we read that, uh, what is it, in uh, Proverbs um, not 31, gosh, I totally went blank, where it says that I knew you before you were born, while you were in your mother's womb. I knit you together. All your days were written in his book before there was yet one of them. Isn't that comforting to know? My days are already written. It's already been laid out. So wherever I'm at, at the time, I'm going home. Okay? And home is just a transition. It's a moment of time. You step step across the threshold of a door into, into God. Okay? And, and I love the perspective poem that I use a lot during uh, funerals. It says, you know, if you want to get a good perspective of, of leaving life here into the afterlife of earth, okay, then picture a ship. It's going off and it's going off and everyone's waving and everyone's waving, you know, uh, those on the shore and those on the ship and it gets farther and farther and smaller and smaller and smaller until finally it's bloop, and it's off on the horizon. And everybody on shore that was watching it go says, she's gone. But at that moment, in heaven, they are in full array of celebration saying, here she comes. That's death. You know? So, anyway, I don't know why I said that, but... uh, that was free. I'm not going to charge you a thing for it. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Isaiah chapter 46. He has the plans, and the plans don't stop with our earthly life. They actually just kick in the gear for eternity, right? Okay? And so we read in Isaiah 46, probably my favorite passage in the Scriptures, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is none other, or no other. I am God and there is none like me. Look at your neighbor and say, there is none like him. He is the only one. Okay? That's why he said there shall have no other gods before me, because there are no other gods. And then he says, I make known, I'm in uh, verse uh, 10. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Okay? I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I, all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Okay? God has a plan. He's a big picture God. 
always keeping the main thing, the main thing. And what is his main thing? The restoration and the reconciliation of his created children from the garden, from the fall, back to be restored back to him. And by way of definition, let me just say restoration is the putting things back in their right place and in their right condition. That's restoration. And the fact that they're out of their right place and out of their right condition is the sign for the need for restoration. Okay? And so he says, What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. God has a plan, okay? And he has a purpose, and he has a people working with him in that plan, those that he have already restored. And as they are restored, they're restored to destiny. They're restored to have a part in his plan and in his purpose in redemption story. Okay? And everything he does on the earth and for us individually is all in light of this big picture of restoration. The healing, the quickening, the providing, the jobs are minutiae of things that we get caught up in that has a tendency to take us out of his big picture and plan of what we're to be about as well. Okay? So, Father, we thank you today. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is faithful, that you are a God who is true, that you are a God who does have a plan, who does have a purpose, and it is mercy, and it is grace, and it is love, because you are a God of relationship. You are our Father, Abba. Abba. And you long to bring your children back to walk with you in the garden. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us. And we thank you for today that you have given to us in your word. And show to us and reveal to us your purpose and your plans from ancient times and what is still to come. And that you will be faithful. In the name of our Lord Jesus, to whom you have accomplished all of this, and by the working of your great and wonderful and marvelous and brilliant Holy Spirit in us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Dive in. Now, let me tell you a little story. Uh, Can you go ahead and put up that first one from that one? Two businessmen were uh, from Minnesota, decided that they could go down to Mexico City and start a bungee cord business. They figured uh, Mexico wouldn't know much about bungee cord. It'd be a great novel, new thing, and they'd make all kinds of money. So they went down to uh, Mexico City. They got there and they began to construct this platform, you know, getting higher and higher in which to strap the bungee cord on. Well, as it got higher and higher, 
Mexicans begin to gather down at the base of the platform, just looking up there, trying to figure out what these gringos were doing. Okay? It gets higher and higher, and finally they complete the platform, and now it's time to attach the bungee cord and to take a test jump and make sure it's not too short or too long. Okay? So they flipped a coin between themselves to see who would take the first jump. And so the guy that lost looked back at his partner and said, Now you just remember, you catch me when I come back up here. Because if this is too long, I don't want to go down and hit again. All right? So he attached the cord to his ankle, and sure enough, he dove off head first. He went flying down, came flying back up. His partner reached for him and missed him. He goes, Ow! Oh. And he noticed that there was a, a bruise or something on his face, and he says, Oh gosh, I've got to get him. The cord must be too long. He goes flying down again, comes flying back up. He reaches to get him again, missed him again, and knows there's three or four more car, uh, big bruises on him. He says, gosh, i got to get him. The cord is too long. And finally he comes flying up again, and he's just beat all up and everything, and the guy grabs him and pulls him up on the platform. And he looked at his point, and he says, man, I am so sorry. I missed you this couple times. He says, I guess our, our, our cord's too long. His partner looked at him and says, no, of course, fine, but uh, what's a piñata? <laughs> In order to understand what we're doing and why we're doing this, we need to understand from where and where we are, okay? And what God has said so that we know the whole story. And we know how to move. Now, let me ask you a question. How many in here has read a good Jewish book lately? Raise your hand. Okay, one. Okay. All right. Well, let me ask the rest of you, without trying to embarrass you, have you been reading your Bible lately? If you have been reading your Bible, you are reading a very good Jewish book book. Okay? Now, we're living in a very interesting time in history. We're living in a history where history and prophecy is meeting so fast that it's hard to keep up with it. Okay? And where everything now seems to have come full circle. It began in Jerusalem, where God said to Abraham, the place where I will put my name, okay? And where Abraham even offered Isaac on the rock was Jerusalem. That was Mount Moriah, where the present Temple Mount is today. It started from there, it has gone all around the world, and now the Lord has brought his nation home and reestablished them. Because God has two peoples in the world bringing forth his plan of redemption. He has a nation, a called out nation, and a called out people in and among the nations. The church. God's road map to peace has to do with a nation and a people in the nation, and they are complementary in what they do, not contradictory. They're like two sides of a train track headed toward the same destination. 
Now, for so long in the church, we haven't understood this. We felt like Israel blew it. They're out because of unbelief. They killed Jesus. And so the baton was passed to us. And yes, a baton was passed to us. But not in the sense that we think the baton was passed to us. Because remember, God said he so loved the world that what? He gave his son. Jesus says, no man takes my life, I lay it down. And then he said the most awesome of statement when he said, only if I be lifted up can I draw what? All men unto me. That was the plan that God gave to his friend Abraham. Through you, Abraham, not only your nation, but all peoples, it's plural there, of the world shall be blessed which was the Messiah portion of the covenant. So God called forth a nation which had a plan and a purpose in his big picture. They would produce or manufacture in time and in history redemptive products for the world. It came through the Jewish people. So... We need to consider today what the Jewish people have given to Christianity. Because understand this, Judaism doesn't need Christianity to explain from whence it came. Christianity must have Judaism to explain our origin. We are Jewish. We have a Jewish umbilical cord though it was cut at a certain point in history, actually the third century. And we lost that. Now it has gone all around the world and it's coming back to Jerusalem again. And it's about time for the church to finish its commission, having carried these redemptive products birthed by the nation into all of the world where we have lived, making communities of faith, okay? And now we realize that at a certain point, the church completes its task. It's taken with its uh, groom. And Israel then again has the baton and finishes the plan, okay? Are you following me now in, in Scripture, prophetic Scripture here? And so it's about time for us to pass the baton back. And so we need to be very careful in the passing of the baton that we don't drop it and disqualify ourselves, such as happened in the 4 by 100 meter here two Olympics ago with both U.S. teams, the women and the men, remember? Okay. Now, as Israel birthed the church in the first century, God is calling his church today who has a mindset to know the day in which we're living and know what we need to do concerning Israel. Kind of like the tribe of Issachar, right? In Chronicles, whom David chose as his, party, as his mighty men, it said he chose them for two reasons. They were men who knew the day in which they lived and two, knew what, knew what they needed to do concerning Israel. And I believe God is calling his other covenant people those who have come into the fullness of covenant understanding 
that we understand and see the day in which we're living today. And because of that, know what we need to do concerning Israel as God now is bringing it back to Jerusalem. Okay? So that's what we're looking at here. So let me help you understand what we have received from our Jewish brothers, who are still in covenant, by the way. Not the fullness of covenant understanding as the Gentiles have come into because they haven't as yet seen Yeshua as their Messiah, but will and are in covenant. Why? Because God keeps covenant to a thousand generations. And he said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to put you in a deep sleep. And this covenant that we're cutting right now, I'm going to pass through the sacrificial pieces by myself. Which means I alone will see the fulfillment of this covenant. You're not going to have any part in it. Okay? But I'm making it with you and your people. So they're still in covenant. And they will come into the fullness of his purpose and plan in restoration history. So the Jewish people gave to Christianity redemptive products <coughs> for the world. Next slide, please. Consider what they've given to us. The legacy that's been passed down to us from our Jewish brothers in covenant. One, the revelation of the one true God. The God who is holy, the God who is just, the God who is righteous, and the God who is true came through the Jewish people to the world. Not only that, but a system of laws of governing and bringing morality and order to our civil uh, society. Every nation who actually has these principles has been a mighty nation until they've gotten away from them and the whole foundation has crumbled, much like America seems to be teetering right now. Okay? Not only that, Miss Blair, oh, okay, the patriarchs, all the patriarchs, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, David, all Jewish. And then we have the uh, prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, actually, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and the great Italian Jewish prophet, Malachi. <laughs> Actually, Malachi. All Jewish. And then what about the followers of Jesus, his 12 disciples? Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, Simon, uh, Judas, uh, Judas Iscariot, and Matthias. Not a Baptist in the bunch. All Jewish. And then our Bible. Our Bible. The author of all 66 books of the Bible, with the possible exception of two, which would be Acts and the book of Luke, okay, are Jewish. And then finally, even our Lord Himself, Jesus. 
was born Jewish, circumcised on the eighth day, had his bar mitzvah when he was 13 years old, kept the law of Moses, wore his prayer shawl, quoted the Hebrew scriptures, taught in the temple, died under the inscription, King of the Jews. And that's why John says in chapter 4, salvation is from the Jews. In other words, it came through that vehicle. Okay? Now, let me share something with you. Geographically, the Bible is set in the land of Israel for the most part. I think we all would agree with that, right? Historically, the theme of the Bible is the people of Israel. Would you agree with that? Now, we as Christians a lot of times overlook that simple and yet very obvious fact. And yet it's that that gives the clarity and cohesiveness to all of the Bible. Now, for example, the first 11 chapters of the Bible serve as an introduction. And they fill in the background and they set the stage for everything else that is to follow. What do we have in the first 11 chapters? You have in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, the creation account. Then in chapter 3, you have the fall of man. And immediately in uh, chapter 3 and verse 15, the promise of restoration. Okay? And then in chapters 6 and 7, you have Noah and the flood because everything became so evil, God says... I need to start again. <coughs> Bill, you have any water? Yes. Or pastor, excuse me. Known him a long time. So. <laughs> and then beginning at chapter 12. Okay, excuse me. And then chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel incident. You know, when God said, okay, the flood is over with now. Spread out, fill the earth, Multiply. And the people said, nah, we like it here. Matter of fact, we're really questioning you. So we're going to stay here right in Shinar. And we're going to build a tower up into the heavens. And we're going to get up there and see if you're really there or not. And we're going to make a name for ourselves. And God looked down and he made the most awesome of statement when he said, if in one mind... In other words, if in unity and, and, and oneness they decide to do this, he said nothing they attempt would be impossible to them. That's a powerful statement of the power of unity. When we come together, blessings received, released or evils released to its fullest form. God said, no, you won't. Change their languages. And had them scattered all over the earth and still began to fulfill his promise, even in their rebellion. Now, from that point on then, that's the backdrop of the Bible. Then at chapter 12, God begins to initiate his plan of redemption story by calling a man. It was a man, it was a plan, a man, and a land. Okay? And he called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. He would have been Iraqi today. Imagine that. Okay? And he began to reveal his plan to him. 
And from that point on, the Bible is essentially the history of Abraham and the nation descended from him through Isaac, Jacob, or Israel. Do you agree? Okay. Well, there's also a unique feature of the Bible that we need to understand. It's written from two vantage points. One, it's written from the vantage point of history, which is normal when everything is written after the facts. Okay? And then the remainder of the Bible is written from before the facts called prophecy. So when you take these two things together, the historical and the prophetic portions they constitute then a complete history of the people of Israel, their beginning to their end. Now, that's easy for us to see concerning the Old Testament. But the New Testament, well, because of centuries of unconscious perspective of Christian tradition... It's hard for us to evaluate these facts objectively in the New Testament, but let's try. Okay? Start with Jesus and his identity, since he is the one supreme important person in the New Testament. I mean, apart from him, it wouldn't even have been written, right? Okay? Well, beyond question, that during his earthly life, by every possible standard, Jesus was an Israelite. We all agree that, right? Okay. So then, did the identity of Jesus as an Israelite cease then with his earthly life? Well, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, more than 50 years after his death and resurrection, Jesus is still described in heaven as the lion of the tribe of the root of David. Okay? This is his identity after his death, after his resurrection, throughout eternity. He is forever the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And so he is forever identified with the family of David, the tribe of Judah, the people of Israel. Okay? Well, what about then the characters and the content of the four Gospels. Once again, with the exception of a brief visit into Egypt by Joseph and Mary, all the events described in the Gospels take place within the borders of the land called Israel. Furthermore, over 90% of the people portrayed in the Gospels are Israelites. Well, what about the authorship of the New Testament, is that somehow different? All 27 books that we've already said, authored by an Israelite, though there is a question concerning Luke and the book of Acts, since it's uh, uh, considered uh, generally accepted that Luke wrote both of these. But Luke was a proselyte to Judaism. And so he too then becomes identified with Israel. Now, we too are a proselyte to Judaism. 
because Christianity is Jewish through a Jewish Messiah and the blood of a Jewish Messiah. So at some point in our history, we become grafted into what? To Israel and share the commonwealth of Israel that the scriptures talk about. So we too then become identified, not in our history, but in their history going forward from that moment on, which has already been written, not only from the vantage point of history, but also in prophecy to the future. Now, what about the main instruments of the New Testament in spreading the gospel? Almost without exception, Jewish. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, his co-workers, Barnabas and Silas, Timothy, by virtue of his Jewish mother. Can we think of a single Gentile Christian who played a major role in the New Testament record? Not really. Okay? Well, consider the prophetic section, then, of the New Testament. That was all the historical. Is this some way different? Well, it seems to me it's not. The writer to the book of Hebrews tells us that the ultimate goal of all true believers is what? Anybody want to take a shot at it? Well, Hebrews 11, verse 10, he says, We are looking for the city who has the foundations and whose builder and maker is God, right? Well, in Revelation chapter 21, this city is described. And on its gates are inscribed the twelve tribes of Israel. And on its foundations are what? The twelve apostles of Jesus. Jewish. Every name inscribed in the New Jerusalem is a Jewish or Israelite name. And so... What I have to say at this point is surely no one with anti-Semitic prejudices are really going to be comfortable there. I mean, it's funny because we'll praise a Jew on Sunday morning and go down the road and curse the Goldbergs during the week. Okay? Now... So when you combine then the survey of the New Testament with the Old Testament, I think a very clear, simple conclusion is realized. The Bible is essentially a record of Israel written by Israelites partly in the form of history and partly in the form of prophecy. Now let me ask you a question. Why then? Does this seem strange to us? In fact, almost unthinkable to associate the Jewish people with the New Testament. Let me help you understand. Toward the end of the first century, a very significant break took place in the continuum of history. And this break... Was, had been passed over in about almost total silence by history and specifically by church history. There were two aspects to the break. One, the people of Israel had been separated from their land. 
and two, at just about the same time that they were separated from their land, they were also separated from their role as leaders in disseminating the gospel and building the church. And this double break then determined their role in history for the next 19 centuries. They had become a nation of exiles. One, physically, they were exiled from the only land that they had ever known nationhood in. And two, spiritually, they had become exiled from the very religion of which they themselves were the founders. Well, in 1948, we witnessed as part of the process of healing the first of these two breaks, that between the people of Israel and the land. So my question is then, does the logic of history indicate that this would be the prelude to the healing of the second break, that between the people of Israel, the Jews, and the Christian church. Now do you see where I've come full circle? Most people would dismiss this as inconceivable. How in the world can the church and the Jew come together after all these years of volleying back and forth? Well, a century earlier, most people would dismiss as inconceivable the fact that Israel would ever be restored back to their land. And yet in 1948, history and prophecy met, and the healing process began. And I say that all this as kind of an introduction to what we're going to do today. Because how do you explain the significance of the events that took place in 1948? And how has it brought Christians today to be so interested again for, for from so long in our root system? And wanting to know this more to help us in our walk and in our faith. And wanting to reach out to Israel for the first time in 2,000 years. Let me try to help you understand this. I want you to picture in your mind's eye. Matter of fact, everyone close your eyes. Okay? Just close your eyes and picture, okay, in your mind's eye, this old antique store. It's in your town. You've been in it many, many times over the year. And you're walking through this antique store. And here, way back in the back in the corner, you see this old grandfather clock. It's been there for years. You've passed by it many times. The hands has never moved. No sound has come from it. And all the time, you just thought all the mechanisms were out of order. They didn't work. It was broken. And yet this day, as you walk past it, all of a sudden, you hear... Now, what's happening? Now, no longer is this just an ancient relic from the past. Now, it's telling time. 
Israel, bringing them back into the land once again is God's prophetic time clock. Again, beginning to speak and saying, it is time. It is time for a new era and God has begun to move this. God has his own calendar because he has a purpose and he has a plan. And it doesn't just keep time, it teaches us. The Bible explains it. Israel used it and still uses it. Jesus used it. The early church used it. But in the dark ages, we switched to a Roman calendar. Okay? But God didn't switch. If we want to know what God is doing, we need to see what's on his calendar. Okay? And that's what we're going to do kind of this morning. All right? Now, we're going to look at the feast that most people call the Feast of Israel. But you know, the Bible doesn't call them the Feast of Israel. The Bible calls them the Feast of the Lord. His festivals. Now, there are uh, uh, Sister Valley, if you could take and put up that uh, scrap on there. There are seven feasts that God has determined a yearly cycle for. Okay? It's God's yearly cycle. And if I could explain in the most simplest way that I could, in the most succinct way, what the feasts are all about, I would say it like this. The biblical feasts or festivals were religious holidays that God established to teach His people and specifically then Israel, to learn his plan of redemption through the Messiah. Let me say that again. The biblical feasts are religious holidays that God established to teach his people his plan of redemption through the Messiah. Every, every are we getting there? Okay. Every redemptive work of Jesus, every, look at your neighbor and say, every. You know what every means in Hebrew? Every. Every redemptive act of Jesus happened on a feast day in Jerusalem. Every one of them. And every one of them that is yet to be fulfilled will happen on a feast day and will happen in Jerusalem. I think that in and of itself shows how important it is for us as Christians to understand the festivals. Now, these holy days, as I said, are not called the Feast of the Jews. 
They're not called the Feast of Israel. In the scriptures, they're called the Feast of the Lord, His Feast. And so turn to Leviticus chapter 23. Okay? In Leviticus chapter 23, it's not doing, you clicked on that, it's just not coming up? All right, well, I will do this then. In Leviticus chapter 23, we read this. The feast of the Lord, Leviticus 23, begin at verse 2. Are we there? Leviticus 23, verse 2. The feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Well, we know what the word holy means, right? It means separated. In other words, it's saying here that these feasts, these days, were separated out. Convocations is the word for appointment times. These were separated out as appointment times. Okay? Holy convocation, these are my feast. These are the feast of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. In other words, God says, I'm going to give you certain days in the cycle of your year in which I want you to come and do business with me. And in those times, I will show you a complete picture book of my plan and my purpose and of redemption story from beginning to the end in order as it will occur for the world and in the work of Jesus and for your life individually. That's what the feasts are all about. Okay? Now, there are seven feasts in God's calendar cycle. Seven feasts, they are grouped in two groups of threes and one group of one, Pentecost. Okay? The first three collectively together are called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, though most people call them Passover because they take break place within a week's time. And it begins with Passover. And Passover is the most significant one and actually is the oldest continual festival in all of the world. Okay? So we have unleavened bread, which takes in Passover, unleavened bread, and then first fruits. And then 50 days later, we have Pentecost, or Shuvaot, which is the word for weeks because it means. 50 days following first fruits, okay? Or seven weeks in one day. The Feast of Pentecost. And then about three or four months in the fall of the year, we come to the last festival, which collectively are three again, but they're called by the name Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, which we're in right now, and they make up three feasts kind of back-to-back, which is trumpets, Yom Kippur, and tabernacles itself. Yom Kippur being the day of atonement. Now, one thing we need to understand is that in scriptures, 
And in, uh, according to Judaism, numbers have meaning as well as, let- as letters. Okay? In the Hebrew Scriptures, both the number three and the number seven have profound symbolic significance and value. The number three represents God, or you might say Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So anything that has the number or comes in threes is considered holy by the Jewish people, righteous and good. Seven, on the other hand, is the number of completion on an earthly plane of the scheme of things. So, seven then is the complete number of a thing as far as its relationship to the world is concerned. Therefore, we have three general feasts that's a God thing. Okay? That is righteous, that is pure, and that is good. It is holy, it's set aside, and it's also an appointment time. While the seven specific feasts represent the fact that anything occurring between the beginning of the first Passover and the conclusion of the seventh tabernacles constitutes the completion of the purpose of those feasts. Do you follow me? So remember now, threes and seven are significant. So now let's look at... at uh, Passover. These feasts were pilgrim holidays in the sense that three times a year all of the Jewish people were to come up to Jerusalem. God said, you are not to come and do business with me except in the place where I put my name. And his name was placed in his city, Jerusalem. So they were pilgrim holidays in the, in the fact that they had to sojourn to Jerusalem for the celebration of these feasts. Now, also, it has to do with the fact that we are all sojourners. We're all pilgrims on a journey to the promised land together in God's purpose and plan and destiny of redemption story. So... Um, Let's look at Passover then. And let me just say this. I could sum up Passover and all of these feasts. They really kind of had the same theme according to the Jewish people. And they can be said in less than ten words. They tried to kill us. They didn't succeed. Let's eat. Because all of them have to do with food except one. And so there's really about food for thought. And even Jewish theology has the philosophy that uh, theology is eaten. Remember what Jesus said even? Rabbi Jesus in his Hebraic worldview? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no part in him. In other words, we must take it within ourselves. It must become part of us. Now, Passover, God had said 
There is no way to come to Him from the beginning of time except by blood. He says, when I see the blood, I will what? I will pass over you. Passover is a family holiday. It's not intended to be a corporate celebration, though it is, and they have services. But remember in Egypt, which Passover commemorates. Matter of fact, the whole first three, unleavened bread, has to do with the event coming out of Egypt. Okay, in Exodus chapter 12. But remember, they were to take a lamb for what? For a household. It was a family holiday using all five senses to teach the children what God has done for them in delivering them out of slavery into freedom. Okay? And so all five senses to tell the story of redemption, how he bought back his people, and it's door la door in Hebrew from generation to generation. And so God said, in my yearly cycle of times that you will come to me, I want you to come, and the word is mohed in Hebrew for convocation, and it means rehearsal or recital. And I want you to rehearse or recite that which has taken place, tell it to your children so that they may know the mighty acts of God on their behalf and it not be lost. And it's also reciting what is yet to be fulfilled and will come in those that have yet to be fulfilled. Now, I wonder, and I really do, I wonder if most Christians really understand the magnitude of the event called Passover. It was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, event in all of history. Now think about it. In the Passover narrative, God manifested himself to such a degree that he could no longer be ignored. One, by the world, who was made up of many gods, except now it's going to be this one people, okay? And by his own people. Passover was his revelation time. It was his inauguration, his coming out. Passover was the liberation and the deliverance of God's people whom he separated out and declared holy, separate from all the other people. Because that's what the word holy means. It just simply means separated, separate to God. Now, even in Egypt, you remember, God made a division. And he drew a line. He put his children in Goshen, separating them from the rest of the Egyptians. Why? Because God will have a separated people. Okay? Now, the purpose and the goal of separating was to bring his people into their inheritance. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
which makes up Passover the very first day, the second day, unleavened bread itself, is all about the separation process. And we'll talk about it here in just a few minutes again. But the 40 years of desert wandering, do you remember, was a further cleansing and a separating process to prepare them again for their inheritance, the promised land. Now, you know the, the worst thing about slavery is that we get used to it and we take on the mindset of it and everything about our whole new creation is the transforming of our mind because the scripture says as a man thinks so is he so we have to erase the board it wasn't hard for God to get his children out of Egypt. What was much harder was to get Egypt out of his children. That whole mindset, that whole thinking process. And we see the 40 years to where he finally had to even erase a generation because it was so ingrained and then take the next generation in. Now, and so it took 40 years to weed out and to cleanse them of rebellion. A separating process because God will have a separated people. That's what Passover and Unleavened Bread is all about, the first three feasts. And so the essence of Passover is separation. And it begins with the removing or the separating of leaven from the bread. Remember, it's the time when they read eat unleavened bread. Now, leaven in the Bible is always a picture of sin. Because when you think of leaven, leaven in Hebrew is the word for yeast. What does yeast do to bread? It causes it to rise. It causes it to look much bigger than it really is. It's very deceptive. And it's a picture of sin in the Bible. It's actually, you know the original sin is pride. We think we're something that we're really not. It's the leaven. Matter of fact, any sin that we can commit, if you trace it back to its farthest root, you'll find it in pride. What did Satan say when he failed? I will be like God said it five times. God said one time, no you won't, and he cast him out. So it's about getting the leaven out and removing the leaven. And here's what I want you to hear. In the process of separating out Israel and bringing them out of Egypt, God's great name became famous throughout history from that point on. Who doesn't know about the Exodus story? Even those that aren't in church have heard it at some point, some way, some time. God became known throughout history from that point on as the history of the God of Israel. In other words, a particular people. 
In the Exodus, in the Passover, God made himself known to one, his people, and two, to the world. And so the Exodus then was a flashpoint in world history. It not only, uh, not only for the Jewish people, but in the history of mankind. It identified and manifested the one true God, and it also identified his people. I'd say that's pretty significant. Now, each family in the Exodus was to take an unblemished lamb to their home on the tenth day. They would keep it there, and on the fourth day, they were, after having observed it for three days, allowed uh, the kids to fall in love with this cute, cuddly, beautiful little lamb, playing with it all over the house, and seeing that it had no blemish in it. And then they were to kill it and eat it. What a graphic picture of the consequence of sin. And then they were to eat the bread without their leaven, with their shoes on. And they were to put the blood on the doorpost above and on the sides. Do you realize they were making the cross from top to the sides? And they had to do it by faith. They couldn't say, you know, Moses, I just painted this place. I really don't want to mess it up. Uh, You know, I'll take this lamb in here, but, you know, do I have to put the blood on there out there? And God said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. Now, Passover carries a double meaning. It's a physical, natural deliverance. The shed blood of the Passover lamb redeemed Israel out of Egypt. And it is a spiritual deliverance. The blood redeemed mankind from the wrath of the judgment on sin. It didn't save us for heaven. Heaven is a byproduct of what we get. But the blood saves us from the judgment on sin, and specifically not even on our sin. Because if you remember in Egypt... God's wrath were against the gods of Israel, of Egypt, were not really gods, and those who had aligned themselves with them. At the first Passover, the death angel killed the firstborn male throughout the land. But if the blood of the lamb covered the door, then the death angel passed over that house and that house was spared. Now understand, Pharaoh's son, who was to be next in, Pharaoh, in the line for Pharaoh, Pharaoh was considered one of the gods, the sun god. Okay? And Pharaoh was holding God's firstborn hostage. Now, the whole story is told in Exodus chapter 12. And it's very interesting. In Exodus chapter 12, if you'll turn there, 
And look at beginning at verse 14. Let me just make a couple comments here. It says, This is the day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread without yeast. That's unleavened bread. Okay. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. At Passover, Jewish fathers play a game with their children. It's called Bedechet Chametz. They take a wooden spoon, a bag, okay, and a rope, and a pair of matches. The mother will have taken some scraps of bread and put it around the house, but remember it's a, it's a picture of impurity, of uncleanness, of sin. So in teaching the story to the next generation, this is part of the Passover celebration. He'll take the kids on a hunt for the leaven. And they'll find it throughout the house. And when they find it, they have a feather with them also because they can't touch sin. And so one will hold the bag open. The other will take the feather and they'll slide the little pieces of, 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 uh, uh, of unleavened bread into the bag. They'll tie a little rope around it after they've collected it all. Go outside the house getting sin outside the camp. Okay? And then the father will take the matches or the lighter and he will burn it showing them that sin must be consumed and fully erased out of our lives. And God has done this for us through Passover. Okay? Now, continuing to read. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeaven. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For everyone who eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. In other words, sin cuts you off. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except uh, to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for your generation to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without leaven for the seventh and fourteenth until the evening of the twentieth day. Okay, and then he says, "When you, uh, I'm looking for where it says, I'm not seeing it right here, but God had them at this point change their calendar from and more start marking time all over again from the point of the Exodus when they came out of slavery into the freedom." with God, going toward the promised land. They were to start marking time all over again. And so Passover starts the religious cycle year of Israel today. And it concludes seven months later at the month of Tishri, which begins the civil cycle year. Okay, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But let me say this. Remember during the days of the kings in the scriptures, it always says in the first year of king so-and-so, in the second year of king so-and-so, time was marked by the time when the king began to reign. And so God was saying to his people in the Exodus, I have now begun to reign in your life and have made myself known to you 
as my called out people. Now, start marking time all over again from this moment. Salvation, I mean, a, a, a Passover is the picture of our salvation. From the time that our Passover lamb, Yeshua, was slain on the very day of Passover. He was in the grave on unleavened bread, taking our sin, our leavened bread, into the grave. But because he had no sin, he was unleavened, the grave could not hold him, therefore he would come up out of the grave on the very day of first fruit in Jerusalem again, and then he would say, don't touch me because I must take this sheave and wave it before the Lord. Because on first fruits, the very first of the very first harvest begin to ripe in Israel. All the feasts are surrounding the agricultural year of Israel because God says, I'm not only your God, but I'm your God who will provide for you. Okay? And I will show it in the yearly cycle. Not only as a story of redemption, but as a story of my faithfulness to provide and to do all that I said I would do. So when the very first harvest begins to ripen in their agricultural year, it is the barley harvest. And they will take the very first sheaf, the priest will, and they will wave it before the Lord to say, we acknowledge this was given to us on a higher plane than we ourselves. You are God and you have provided. Okay? Because remember, it was a land in which depended on the rains from heaven and the dew on the ground for water. And it's still true today in Israel. Now, the whole idea behind first fruits is that if the first is accepted, then all of the harvest that will follow is accepted and blessed as being already received in its fullness and completion because the first was accepted. Jesus died on Passover as our Passover lamb. He was in the grave on the very day of unleavened bread. He rose on the very day of first fruits. Went immediately to heaven. Presented himself before the Lord as the first of all those who would follow him in harvest of the kingdom. And because he was accepted... All the rest of us were already deemed, accepted, fully, and complete, though we would still have to go through our stage of maturation process. We were already fully accepted because of the work of Jesus in redemption story, keeping the main thing the main thing. We have now walked through the understanding of God's calendar cycle, why he would said once a year in grand fashion on a table with all of the elements spread with your children around it in your house using these elements tell the story of my death, my burial 
and my re uh, resurrection. And for 3,500 years, the Jewish people have celebrated Passover. It is a family holiday of the exodus out of Egypt, the deliverance from sin by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus died on Passover in the grave on unleavened bread, rose on the very day of first fruits. So that's the work of Messiah in the first three feasts. But also the first three feasts, as are the feasts as I told you also, there's an individual fulfillment. There is a messianic work, but also we're walking through redemption story. And we don't walk through it all over the place. God is ordered and He is structured. Number one, we come to the Lord. And because the Bible says only by blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so we come to the Passover lamb that the scriptures talk about here. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians 5. And we apply the blood of our Passover sacrifice, our lamb that we inspected for three years and saw to be sinless and now was killed and we have consumed him and we applied his blood to the doorpost of our heart. We have a Passover experience in redemption story. And we also have an unleavened bread experience. Unleavened bread, Jesus was in the grave, remember? First fruits, he rose. And haven't you heard from Jesus, follow me into the waters of baptism? We've already confessed, the blood has been applied, and we go down into a watery grave. And we come back up saying, now our life is in allegiance to another. There's been a change in the status of the authority over my life. And I'm following him in obedience with his baptism. Because his baptism was a change in the status of his authority. No longer would he be laity, he was going to be priesthood. And he had to show it by mikvah, by water baptism. It was full and complete immersion. So baptism then becomes the completion of the first three feasts fulfillment in the individual believer's life. Salvation. Baptism and resurrection coming out of the Lord. Now, the salvation, the grace of salvation is complete. And the baptism is actually the period behind our confession statement. That's why it is so important that people not only confess, but they be baptized. It completes the process. Okay? Now, that's the first three feasts. What time is it? 20 hours. 20 you want to take a little break? Or you want to keep going? All right, let's keep going. I just took one. Okay, we've looked at uh, the first three feasts. We've seen that uh, they have a, uh, a messianic fulfillment in Jesus' first coming, right? He fulfilled those three. The historical event, let me just show you this very quickly here. We have the historical event of Passover, the defeat of the death angel in Egypt, the fulfillment of the cross, the defeat of the death 
eternally. And then unleavened bread is the preparation, the cleansing of the house of all the dust and the leaven in Egypt. And it's the sinlessness of Christ. This also allowed him to leave Hades and to be resurrected. And then first fruit is the presentation of the first barley stalk to God as a guarantee of the completion of the rest of the harvest. And we're going to see at Pentecost here, the next one, 50 days later, the rest of that first harvest that started with that sheaf comes complete. Okay? And uh, then we have Pentecost is the completed harvest gathered and the church uh, is gathered. Now, so Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruit is the first one. It's called unleavened bread. It comes in the spring, in the months of uh, Nisan Aviv, or March or April, the 14th to 21st, and it comes with the for- what's called the former rain. The agricultural that co- agriculture that comes in is the grain and the barley. It's the first of the first harvest that's reaped. The fulfillment in history is the Egypt incident, and the lamb was slain, put on the doorpost. Jesus fulfilled this at Calvary. Uh, and the grave and resurrection, the believers, it's the first area of redemption, salvation. Okay? Now, Passover is confession of faith, unleavened bread, died of sin, water baptism, salvation, commission. Okay. Now, we come to Pentecost. Pentecost was to take place 50 days after First fruits, exactly 50 days. It referred to the Feast of Weeks. It's referred to as the Feast of Harvest. Uh, You can find this in Exodus 23. It's celebrated on the sixth day of the Hebrew month of Sivan, which corresponds to our March and June time frame. It's the fourth feast in God's calendar cycle. Now, there was one main activity at the Feast of Pentecost. The priest would take and wave two loaves of baked bread before the Lord. And they were to do this exactly 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, when that first wave sheaf was waved before the Lord as an offering there. Now, the Greek word for Pentecost, we know, is 50, and that's where this gets its name between these two feasts. Now, on Pentecost, what did we see on Mount Sinai? Let me give you the historical connection with Israel to Pentecost. The Jewish people believe, and the rabbis teach, that the Torah, God's Word, Okay, was given on Sinai at Pentecost, on Shuvaot. Okay, so God's word came to His people, and so this celebration, this one-day celebration, is to commemorate the giving of God's word. Okay. Now, do you remember what happened at that particular time? At Mount Sinai, because of the golden calf incident, what happened? 3,000 were killed. Okay? And here's what I would say. The letter of God's uh, God's word, the letter of the law, as we've always heard the phrase, kills. 
But on the day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts, what happened? 3,000 were saved because the Spirit of the Word, the Holy Spirit brings life. Now, understand, I don't want to say this. Pentecost did not originate with Christianity. Okay? It's the Jewish feast that God chose to send the Holy Spirit as proof that Jesus had been glorified. And this would be when the rest of that harvest, the rest of the barley was brought in, not just the first sheave, but now all of it was brought in. So it was a celebration of the first of the harvest come in. Jesus was the first sheaf. Fifty days later, the first four harvest of ingathering in the kingdom came in, 3,000. Okay? Now, understand this. Jesus came and he is Lord over the church, right? But he said, I will send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is to be the Lord in the church, bringing us to the character of Jesus in our life. Jesus said, do you remember concerning the Holy Spirit? He said he breathed on his disciples and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. It was an indwelling, an enablement to be like Jesus and to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus in our mind, in our character, okay? And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in power. It was an empowerment for those who were now becoming like Jesus to do the works of Jesus. Because Jesus said, if I go away, the Holy Spirit can't come and greater works than these will you do because I go to my Father. So the Holy Spirit came in an enabling to make us like Jesus inside and then to empower us so that we could do the works of Jesus going forth. Okay? Now, so from Luke's account in Acts chapter 2, we see the marvelous timing of God. Thousands of Jews had journeyed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. It was then that the followers were filled with the Holy Spirit. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit was taking place on the very days the Jews were offering two wave loaves of the harvest now to God. One wave loaf representing, what do you think? His nation. The other wave that would represent his people in and among the nations, the church, that too would receive the Holy Spirit, not many days hence, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. All because of the first sheaf of the harvest that was accepted and blessed that God said to Abraham, through you, Abraham, not only your people, but all peoples of the world will be blessed. Jew, 
and Gentile. And so at Pentecost, the two loaves then that were representative of that first harvest would also represent the two peoples that God would use in redemption story that would make up all peoples of the earth. A beautiful people, uh, uh, beautiful, beautiful picture of God's fulfillment in, uh, in his story. So let me show you this. Pentecost, the specific feast is Pentecost, late spring, early summer, May, June, 50 days after first fruits. The full barley harvest now has come in. Two loaves are baked, Jew and Gentile, to wave to be accepted before the Lord because of the first fruits. Now, the fulfillment in history, uh, the historical event was Mount Sinai. God speaks, the Torah is given, fire, wind, and tongues. 3,000 are killed because of the golden calf. The letter of the law kills. But Jesus, when he would send the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, in the upper room, there was fire, wind, and tongues also. 3,000 were saved. The Spirit of the Word of God gives life. Now, for the believers then, the Holy Spirit baptism, I believe, is the second area of redemption called sanctification. It's to enable us to be like Jesus and to empower us to do the works of Jesus as the Holy Spirit is our teacher and comforter and one who does not leave us but continually walks along beside seeing that we can and that we do. Okay? Now, that's Passover, and that's Pentecost. And I think, let me say one last thing concerning Pentecost. The fact that this fourth feast stands alone, not in a group of three like the first three, shows the importance of the Holy Spirit in our life primary in our life to enable us to be part of the ingathered harvest, the people of God, the separated out ones, and helping us to put on the armor, helping take the wrinkles out of our bridal gown so we might be a bride without spot or without wrinkle, fulfilling our part as the army of God in his commission to us. Okay? Now, we're going to go to the fall of the year, and we're going to look at uh, trumpets. Trumpets occurs in September or October of the religious calendar year. We have now come to the uh, last and the final feast uh Grouping. Okay. It takes in trumpets, which begins on the seventh month. Remember I told you the religious cycle year started when? In the spring with what? Passover. And it concludes in the seventh month with tabernacles. Well, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, is the very first day of the seventh month in the Hebrew religious calendar called Tishri. 
And then we have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or also can be called the Day of Judgment, because two things happen at one time. There's atonement, and there's also judgment. And then tabernacles, or Sukkot, that should be an OT there, that comes and concludes in which we are right in the middle of right now. Now the season is fall. This comes in with the latter rain. Uh, the month is Tishri, the seventh month of the religious calendar year, but begins the first month of the civil calendar year. The agriculture, in other words, all the harvest now, the nuts, the grapes, the fruits, uh, the grains, everything now for the full year has come in. God, again, has showed himself faithful, not only to be their God, their protector, their keeper, but also their provider. Okay? Now, uh, let's look a little bit at the trumpets, and then I'm going to get very specific on uh, trumpets and, uh, and Yom Kippur and tabernacles. Uh, I'm going to deal more with trumpets this morning in the rest of our time. And I'm going to deal Sunday night specifically with tabernacles. Okay? The last one, Sukkot. And I'm going to show you, we're going to take tabernacles, we're going to actually hit on the uh, Jewish uh, minor festival of Hanukkah because it comes around the same time as our Christmas. And the three are linked together concerning a very special event that has great prophetic significance. Okay? And we're going to deal specifically with Jesus, his birth, tabernacles, Hanukkah, and Christmas connection. It'll blow you away. Okay? So you don't want to miss. Please tell everyone Sunday night you want to come back. It's going to be very special. Now, the last feast season is the Feast of Tabernacles, and it includes, again, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, uh, called the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, and it concludes the harvest year. Now, the Feast of Trumpets is on the first day of the seventh month of the religious calendar. Let me show this to you because this can get a little... Um, A little uh, confusing. What time have we got, Pastor? Okay. Is this making sense to you for the most part now? Okay. Now, in the United States, here is our religious calendar year. Here is our uh, um, civil calendar year. Okay? January begins our religious calendar year, and it goes through December. Our civil or fiscal calendar year begins right around uh, the summer going into August, right? And it, it counts 
back up. That's our fiscal calendar year. Well, in Israel, God have them start the very first of their religious calendar year here with Nisan Aviv. This begins their religious calendar year, and it comes on down to Tishri, and then works its way back around. While their civil calendar year begins with the seventh month, Tishri, and comes back around to Tishri again. Okay, you following with me? But the religious calendar year is what's significant with the Jewish people because it's God's calendar cycle. And what he has said is once a year, three times a year, come and have a holy appointment time with me. And during that time, I want you to recite all that I've done for you, making sure that it's passed on to the next generation. And rehearse what is yet to be done because you understand that because of what has been done on these very days, what is yet to be done in my purpose and plan will also be done in the rest of the calendar cycle year on those days in Jerusalem as well. Okay? So that's what we're looking at here. So God said once a year in grand fashion, around the table, tell the story of Passover, of your salvation. It is the birthday of our salvation. Of how Jesus, as our Passover lamb, took us out of slavery and bondage of Egypt to the promised land. Using all of these elements, tell the story of your redemption. Okay? Through my death, through my burial, through my resurrection. And then all during the year, with this bread and with this cup, as often as you will or as often as you want to, remember my death, burial, and resurrection till I come. So what takes place then? Communion is not to be the extinction of the Passover table, but it's to be the extension of the Passover table. Once a year in grand fashion, around this table, tell the full story. And all during the year, as often as you need to remind yourself with this bread and with this cup. So communion and Passover really are one and the same. And they complement. Passover is the picture of a promise. Communion is the picture of a promise provided kept. but both using all five senses. Feel, taste, touch, hear, and what's the other one? Smell. You use those to tell God's story of redemption and what He has done for us and making sure that it goes to the next generation. Door la door. From generation to generation. Okay? Now, we've come to the fall of the year. It's September. It's October. And the trumpet is to sound. So, uh, Sister Valley, you think you can get that one up for me? And I'm going to switch... 
That's the, okay, stop there. It's the Feast of Trumpets. It's the very first day of the civil calendar, and it concludes the last month of the religious calendar. Now, what I want to, you to understand is that all the festivals came in the middle of the year, of the month, okay? Except one. Passover came on the 15th, okay? Uh, uh, Pentecost comes in the middle of the month. But Rosh Hashanah, which started the last three, always came on the first day of the month. And that's significant for what I'm going to tell you here in just a little bit. One of the clearest demonstrations of the use of trumpets is warfare. Remember, we're walking through our redemption story. Jesus is fulfilling redemption story. Jesus went to war and to battle against Satan in the world over his people. And so trumpets is about battle. And it's also about us coming from a place where the Holy Spirit in, enters us, begins to enable us, one, to finally come to a place to where our will is killed. Because we're coming to the rest of the Lord in our walk. We've been saved. We've been filled. There's the four or five long summer months now that you might even look at as the church age. And we're going through our maturation process. Though we're already fully accepted. We don't have to worry about that. But we have to go through that process. And so in that process, though imputed righteousness was given to us with Jesus and is always there for us, the Holy Spirit and God's purpose is that we not only will continue to walk in imputed righteousness, the righteousness of the Lord given to us in mercy and grace, but that the Holy Spirit will move us to more and more actual righteousness in our character as was Jesus' character. Are you following with me? Until we come fully to heaven died, Yom Kippur, to ourselves. Yom Kippur is, I mean, uh, Rosh Hashanah is battle. Yom Kippur is death. Tabernacles was called by the Jewish people the feast of the presence of the Lord. The feast of great joy. All the harvest had come in. The Lord's presence was there. And they believed the Lord will reside with them during this feast. Okay? And we know that where the Lord is, there is rest. And so we're moving toward rest, the fullness of the promised land that Hebrews talks about. But there has to be a full coming to death, like Jesus came to death in our own lives. Rosh Hashanah kicks that in for us as individuals. We need to come to the final dregs of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life in us that keeps us from being fully like our Messiah through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Until we finally can present it fully to be judged before the Lord 
on atonement so that we might fully rest in the tabernacling or the presence of the Lord. Because you remember, it was during the tabernacle experience that God's Shekinah, even though they were still in the desert and they were going through the process to the fullness of the promised land, his Shekinah, his pillar of cloud by day and his fire at night was what? In their midst. He was present with them. And because of that, they could see him. They could see it. They were at peace and they were at rest. So the Lord is trying to bring us to final death, atonement of the Lord and judged, so that we can walk in the presence of the Lord in our lives in full and complete rest. And the last three have a fulfillment in the work of Jesus in that trumpets has to do, for the most part, what most believe is the actual rapture event that we talk about when his saints will be called up to meet him. And then Yom Kippur, which is a day of atonement, is when the Lord actually comes back in his second coming. Okay? And what does he do when he comes back? He comes back to Jerusalem, the same place from which he left on that redemptive act. Now he comes back to Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives, Who is gathered together against Jerusalem to do battle? All the nations. For them, it's a day of judgment, Yom Kippur is. But for Israel, what does it say? They look upon him whom they pierced and mourn and weep as an only child. It's a day of atonement for them. So Yom Kippur is perfectly right. It's a day of atonement and it's also at the same time a day of judgment. Okay? And then, tabernacles is considered the feast in which the Lord will reign on earth for a thousand years. His presence will tabernacle with us. Where? In His city, on His mountain, in Jerusalem, on the very day of Sukkot. So, now having said that, I want to deal with here after lunch, very specifically, the Feast of Trumpets. Showing you, or rather helping us understand, was Jesus saying to his disciples, when they ask him, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of all things? Was he saying to them, you can't know? Or was he actually answering their question? I think for a long time, and still for most of all of the church, they were saying, he was saying, you can't know. No one, man, no one knows the day nor the hour, not except my Father in heaven. Well, I think I can help you understand something here that does not violate that at all. And you actually can see maybe he was answering their question. Okay. So we're going to get to that, and that's kind of, so hang in there with me. But I've got to wait till the pastor's back because I've got to prove to him I'm not a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want it to come uh, through the second person of his wife. I want him to hear it directly. So we're going to wait to deal with that after lunch. And I just wanted to kind of give you that overview of trumpets having to do with battle, not all of lives, also having to do with the fulfillment of Jesus in, uh, in the rapture event, 
and then Yom Kippur having to do with our will, okay, being fulfilled, and then also with his second coming, and then tabernacles having to do with his millennial reign, and also with our abiding in the presence of the Lord and his tabernacling with us, okay? So it's going to be good. It's going to be fun. I hope you've gotten some things out of this morning session here as we've kind of just ran through it, and believe me, that's all we've done. Because I could have spent this whole entire time just on Passover. So let me just say now, while we're waiting for Pastor to bring us back our physical food, uh, any questions, let me just open this up and let you just ask any questions on anything that we've talked about already. Let's don't kind of really get into the last four feasts, uh, because, or last three, because I want to deal with them uh, this evening. Yes? So can I say I don't know exactly how to answer it? Well, I'm trying. I mean, I'm trying to say bear with me. Because you said the Lord's start time. And so at that moment, I'm thinking A, B, and B, C. Is that when that started? No, no, no. What I said was that when the Lord brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus event, he told them that from this point, you are to start marking time all over. And he actually had them change their calendar from that moment to start marking time again. Uh, and let, uh, the first two of chapter 12. Oh, my knee is locked up on me. Uh, first two of what? Chapter 12? Okay, go to Exodus chapter 12. Okay, Exodus 12. We read in verse 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt. Now he said this to them in Egypt, right? This month is to be for you the first month. The first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, each man is to take a lamb. Okay? They were in Egypt. But God said, because of the significance of what I'm going to do, you're going to start marking time all over again. No longer you're going to be a slave. You're going to be free men, free to serve me. Okay? And it's going to change your whole entire calendar. And don't we do the same thing when we are saved? We start marking time all over again because the king has come in to rule. And we say, old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We're a new creation. Matter of fact, the church birthed on the day of Pentecost itself was a new creation. Gentiles had not been part of the picture. So it was a new creation of God where he was saying, all right, now Abraham, I'm going beyond just your nation, like I said, to all peoples. Okay? So at the time that Jesus comes into our heart and our life in salvation, and that's why we're saying Passover is the salvation experience, it's the birthday of our salvation, we start marking time all over in our life. Someone can say to me, Lenny, when were you born? I said January 10th, 1952. But if you really don't know when I was really born, it was August 1972. That's when I started marking time all over again for eternity. And that's what God said to Israel. Start marking time all over again from this moment on. That's going to start your cycle 
of spiritual deliverance. Okay? It's beautiful. 